I went out walking through streets paved with gold Lifted some stones, saw the skin and bones of a city without a soul I stopped outside a church house where the citizens like to sit They say they want the kingdom, but they don't want God in it Yeah, I went with nothing, nothing but the thought of you I went wandering From the Mecca of Mormonism, Salt Lake City, Utah, this is Heart of the Matter, where Mormonism meets Biblical Christianity face-to-face, -face. and I'm your host, Sean McCraney. If you have family or friends or enemies who can't watch Heart of the Matter on live television in Idaho or all the surrounding areas, Utah, have them go to www.hotm.tv and they can watch live streaming video from anywhere in the world. And we welcome all our live streaming video viewers out there. Two books for your consideration and one video. First, I was a born-again Mormon. It tells the whole story honestly, but with a heart for the LDS situation. A great read for any Latter-day Saint. As we hope, it gently explains uh, what it means to have a personal, regenerative relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Then we have our latest work, which we call uh, If Then, for short. Uh, but it really stands for, if my kingdom was of this world, then my, then my servants would fight. And I believe this book is a must-read for any Christian wanting the straight shot on how a modern Christian attitude and actions measure up compared to what the Bible has to say today. Uh, you know, I have the opportunity to speak on the premise of uh, If Then last Saturday night up in Riverdale. And here's a short segment from that speech. And when the body begins to have close personal relationship with the peace of this world, that is the people and policy and practices and uh, politics, the dangers to the body of Christ are far greater than the perceived benefits of joining up with these non-Christian groups that have political power and sway. So if you want to watch that full speech about the whole premise of If Then, we think it's very important in this day and age, uh, go to www.hotm.tv and you can check it out. Okay, so I was a born-again Mormon. It's available at Utah Lighthouse Ministry, Oasis Book and Logan, Gift of Grace. And uh, both books are available at Christian Gift and Bible, Lifeway Christian Bookstores, and of course at hotm.tv. Additionally, copies of Girl are available at the same website. The short film is an excellent support product for helping uh, open up a dialogue about premarital sex with teens and um, even young adults. So uh, you can get that at HOTM and get yourselves ready for the premiere of Boy, which we expect to have ready, uh, the follow-up to Girl, Boy, which we expect to have ready uh, the last uh, part of July, August, something like that. Okay, how about letting us help you plan your Sunday afternoons? Ready? 
First AM 820, The Truth, from 1 to 2 p.m. every Sunday afternoon. Tune into that AM radio station and hear replays of Heart of the Matter. Then while you're listening, drive to the University of Utah, and from 2.30 to 3.30, we hold a never-denominational open Bible study. And then after you uh, attend the study, or even if you don't want to attend the study, come up to the University of Utah, and we have a You're Not Alone group. And what that is, is a group of people who have come out from the LDS Church and are there to kind of dialogue with, with each other and talk about concerns and ways that the Lord has helped them overcome the difficulty of extracting all the Mormonism in their blood and replacing it with the, uh, the shed blood of Christ, essentially. So uh, plenty to go around for everyone here at Aletheia Ministries, isn't there? If you want more uh, int- uh, information on our Bible study, uh, things like that, go to Calvary Campus for more information on this stuff. Uh, Shield of Faith, it's a website for police officers run by uh, Christian police officers here in the state. Check it out at www.sofut.net. And if you're looking for someone to help walk or mentor you through the uh, leaving the LDS church, uh, uh, please uh, write us and tell us where you live. We've connected people together uh, all the way from Switzerland to uh, Hershey, Pennsylvania, to right here in this studio. So just email us at sean at aletheamedia.com and we will put you in contact with uh, one of these fine representatives who have a heart for God and have left, come out of the Mormon church completely. We're going to show you a list of these people right now so you can see if there's someone in your area that you can talk with. Well, we have more than four people. Um, the, the video uh, got stuck on that, so maybe we can get that fixed and come back to it in a second. How about a couple of emails? This one is from Connie, who says, okay, I have a question, and I want uh, your opinion. My nephew is going to get married at the Krishna Temple, and of course, I will be invited, actually already have been, and I'm wondering, what does a Christian do in a matter like this? He knows what I believe. Does a Christian go or not? I have a few theories on the matter, but need help and advice from Connie. Go, 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 run. Go to that wedding. And you might have a chance while you're sipping herbal tea after the wedding or mending flowers, whatever they do, to talk about Jesus. You know, these are the prime opportunities. So of course you go. You're not going to go and convert to uh, Chris, Harry Krishna. You, you have the Lord in you. Go out and and happily, joyfully uh, be there and give love, and then maybe you'll have an opportunity to share Jesus with somebody there. Another email came in. This is from Tammy. I was just curious on your thoughts of what Mormons, why Mormons feel like food storage is so important. The Bible says in Matthew 6, 25 through 34, that the birds don't gather food and God takes care of them. Will he not care of us? Should we store food or not? By the way, I've noticed that TV preacher Jim Baker is calling all Christians to buy food storage enough for one year for fear of the last days, and this doesn't seem right, so I'm just wondering what your views are. You know, I share the very same views uh, that you brought up with Matthew. I trust God completely. Uh, Many people will have a number of rationalizations on why they should start stockpiling food. They consider it wise, being good stewards of all these different things. 
but I trust God will take care of us. Uh, I think that food storage, especially in the LDS church, has proven to be more of a disaster than anything else. They have wasted more food in the past 100 years than, I mean, I don't even understand it. The, the amount of food they've thrown away in this idea of being prepared for the, the final days is unfathomable to me. So I say, uh, store, lay your treasures up in heaven, trust in the Lord God, and as a believer, he will take care of you. Besides, I also believe that if the end times get really rough, you're gonna be raptured up anyway, so you don't have to worry about it. Some people will call that uh, irresponsible, but that's just how I think. Your support literally helps us stay on the air. Few people realize the reality of this fact. We hope you'll prayerfully consider the following. When the truth is found to be These beautiful girls weren't uh, up here when we started the show, and if we ever have kids in the audience, we like to have them come up. This is Maddie and Michaela, two beautiful, look at these girls. I'm certain they are going to grow up to be wonderful Christian gals, so thanks for being on the show. Is there anything you'd like to say to your friends? No, any special boy out there you'd like to wink at, possibly? No, no, not you either? Okay, girls, thanks for uh, being on the show. We'll drop you down here, and we'll see you later. We have been working our way through the book of Matthew and comparing and contrasting Mormon doctrine with uh, the things that are read that are uh, in that book. And we're, uh, last week we covered an aspect from Matthew 16. Tonight we're going to run through the same verses and cover another aspect of those. So let's uh, now turn to the word. Last week, we talked about Jesus and what he could have meant when he told Peter that upon this rock, I will build my church. Tonight, let's see what Jesus meant when he said to Peter, thou art Peter, and upon this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. What did Jesus mean when he said the gates of hell shall not prevail against it? Well, Christians take the passage literally. When Jesus was on the cross, and he received some vinegar, he said, it is finished. And he gave up the ghost, and he bowed his head, and he died. Let me ask you, what does it mean? What was finished? Uh, and may I respond to you, everything was finished. 
everything that needed to be done was finished by him. Christians know that at this point, Jesus overcame sin, and in a short time, he would overcome death as well. Colossians 2.15 says that, quote, having spoiled principalities and powers, he made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. What do you think this means? It means Jesus took Satan and his power and his command over this world and his influence on on sin and his power on death and he took his title deed to the world of this fallen place and it says in Colossians he made an open show of it. He showed, with his arms raised in a V, so to speak, I had victory over what you did, Satan. I overcame it. It is finished now. And the gates of hell would never, ever, prevail over Christ's finished work or over the gospel that he came to bring to the world. Now, does Satan continue to try to prevail? Absolutely. Uh, And he wins some battles along the way. But he, um, because we're still in the flesh, so we're still subject to temptation. We still make mistakes and we still have sin, right? But the church Jesus established, which grows and spreads through converted people when the Holy Spirit moves into them because they have faith on the blood of Christ, that church uh, will never, ever be lost. It started so small with just Jesus alone, and then it went to the 12, and then out to Jews, and then to the Gentiles, and then out to the world. But the LDS say something very differently. They say that the gates of hell did, in fact, um, prevail against Christ's finished work, And that shortly after he ascended up into heaven, his church fell apart. The church that uh, he said, Peter, the gates of hell will never stand against it. In their own history of the church, it says, quote, nothing less than a complete apostasy from the Christian religion would warrant the establishment of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, the Mormons. There was no possible excuse for the introduction of a new Christian sect, end quote. In essence, the LDS say a man needed to come and fix or restore what Jesus tried to establish in the first place. They say this man's name was Joseph Smith, and ironically, what Joseph Smith did is supposed to endure forever and ever, and it will never have an apostasy. But what Jesus did, it had the apostasy. And by supposedly saving what even Jesus could not keep going, Mormonism claims to be the only true church on the face of this earth. LDS Apostle Bruce R. McConkie said, quote, Mormons have the only pure and perfect Christianity on earth. All other systems of religion are false, end quote. Now, the LDS use a couple of passages out of context from the New Testament to supposedly prove that there was a worldwide apostasy and what Jesus established was lost. If you watch our program called Apostasy that aired on January 19th of 2010, you can hear sound responses to all those verses the LDS will use to try to support their idea that what Jesus established was lost. But tonight, just ask yourselves this question. Do you believe what Jesus did when he came to earth was enough? Or do you believe that a man named Joseph Smith had to come and do more? That's the bottom line question. When Jesus came, was it enough? Or did Joseph Smith need to come and fix and restore and save Christianity through what he did? 
And with that, let's have a word of prayer. Father in heaven, we love you and need you, and we pray your spirit to be uh, with us wherever we are, uh, viewers uh, throughout the world, throughout the state, throughout the nation, in our live audience, and with me as I try to convey things that you would want me to say. Um, Forgive me for things that I might err in, mistakes I might make, but Lord, let those who are seeking for truth find it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Okay. When we hear people say the Book of Mormon, most are not fully aware of what the book claims to be. Some think Mormon Bible. Other people believe it has an actual Mormon history. It actually has a history behind it. The number of individuals in this world who really understand the story of its origins or the construction of the book itself are really relatively few. Before we endeavor to deconstruct the Book of Mormon over the next year and its proposed history and its content and its claims of authenticity, uh, it would be good to explain the LDS's claim, the book of where the book came from, and what Joseph Smith Jr. Uh, said about it in those terms. I'm not going to do much criticism of the book in this analysis, uh, in this introduction to the Book of Mormon. Instead, I'm going to try to teach anyone who's interested exactly where this book supposedly came from, okay? Now, to fully buy into the Book of Mormon, you need to fully buy into this idea of plates, all right? And the idea of plates is foundational to the whole premise of the Book of Mormon. These plates were supposedly made of metallic material, and the best way to get what they are all about is to think of them as metal sheets, they call them plates, metal, thin metal sheets cut out like pieces of paper and then stacked upon each other and bound together with wires or something, okay? So that's what those plates kind of are supposed to look like. Over the course of human history, I'm sure that many cultures dabbled dabbled in a number of uh, writing tablets, so to speak. We know that they drew on cave walls. We know that they, uh, they tried dry, uh, writing in clay tablets in stone. We know that they uh, tried tablets of wood and clay and that they actually did try metal. There are evidences of little art and things on metal pieces. And we know that they also did pounded wood into pulp, called it papyri. And they ultimately wrote most of, most of uh, ancient history and scripture on papyri, okay? All of the sources of information found in the Book of Mormon are said to have uh, existed on these stacks of metal plates, Nowhere in the history of all archaeology have they ever found a stack of metal plates with holy inscriptions on them, whether it be two plates, one plate, a dozen plates. Nowhere in the history of all of archaeology. Papyri, sure. Wood, sure. Stone, tablets, sure, sure. A couple pieces of metal with writing on them, yes. But these plates that are holding all kinds of scripture, no. Now, chronologically speaking, this is how all the information in the Book of Mormon describes itself as coming into being. I'm going to walk you through five types of plates that were supposedly used to produce the Book of Mormon, okay? The first type of plates. Around the time of the Tower of Babel, which was about 2,500 years B.C., 
all right? A group of families known as the Jaredites in the Book of Mormon, because they were led by a man named Jared and his brother, arrived at the sea in Israel, uh, near Israel. They took animal skins, and under the direction of God, they made what we would kind of view as submarines. They took the framework of things with wood and they covered it with skin and they made these submarines. And getting inside, it says that they sailed or floated to the American continent and they flourished into this huge civilization and developed nation. They wrote an account of their exodus and their culture uh, on some supposed plates uh, 2,500 years before the time of Christ. This would lead us to believe that plate inscription was very, very popular because according to the Book of Mormon, it was practiced, uh, this practice was carried out 2,500 years before Christ was born, okay? This Jaredite civilization then uh, was wholly wiped out and they left those plates in the American continent, which would be discovered later. So this is the first set of plates, okay? And just gonna make them look like plates are supposed to look, I guess. 2500 BC. These are the first plates that make up the Book of Mormon. All right, moving forward 1,400 years to 600 BC, we come to the second plates of the Book of Mormon. There was a man the Book of Mormon claims his name was Lehi, and his, the Lord told his family to escape Jerusalem. So uh, uh, around 600 BC. And this man ventured with his family through the Arabian desert and they, uh, away from Jerusalem. And while they were out in the wilderness, the Lord commanded them to go back and to obtain the brass plates from Laban, a man named Laban in uh, uh, Jerusalem. And these plates of brass are said to have contained vital genealogy of Lehi and his family, the five books of Moses, the book of uh, Isaiah, and a few other important uh, books. Having them would be vital to Lehi and his family as they left Jerusalem to sojourn out to where God was leading them. And so Lehi's sons go back to uh, Jerusalem, to this man who was supposedly named Laban, and they get the brass plates, okay? So this brings us to the second type of plates the Book of Mormon is founded on. And this is 600 BC, and they're the brass plates, okay? All right, so Lehi and his family can tr continue traveling through the wilderness, and they get to the sea, and they make a boat, and they travel all the way over uh, to the Americas. Once they landed here, they began to record their history on plates too. So now we come to the third and fourth type of plates. And this started at 600 BC and it went all the way through 130 BC. Okay, so now we have a, a third and fourth type of plates. And okay, so I'll keep going so you understand. Now, according to the Book of Mormon, these were a lot of plates. I just put two packs, but we're talking about a lot of plates, tons of them that these guys wrote upon. And um, so there are the first four main types. You got all that? And uh, that the Book of Mormon material came from. So let me describe how the Book of Mormon claims that they were all put together. And it kind of goes like this. There was a man named Mormon. 
And this man, about 385 A.D., was called by God to go and gather up all these plates, okay? And so Mormon said, okay, I'm going to go gather up all the plates. And he started to decipher. Now, the brass plates he used kind of as a reference to get scripture from and things like that. They were a support product. They weren't incorporated directly into Mormon's Book of Mormon. But so we have all these plates gathered. And he first took from what are called the small plates... And he took the uh, first six books of the Bible, uh, of the Book of Mormon. First Nephi, second Nephi, Jeremiah, I think. I mean, Jacob, Enos, Jacob, Enos, and Jerem, and Omni. So Mormon goes, he finds these plates that were written, started back in 600 B.C., and he records what Nephi said in the first and second books, Jacob, and he compiles them on to gold plates. So this takes us to the fifth type of plates that Mormon now is taking from these all, and he compiles what they were supposedly found on these small plates onto this. Then there's a gap, and Mormon adds his own words. Remember, it's now 385 A.D. He adds his own words of Mormon book right here in between these. And he gives you kind of an update of what he's doing next. And he says, I'm going to now start translating from these, which are called the large plates. And so he starts translating here. And in these, we have Mosiah, and we have Alma, and we have 3rd Nephi, and we have 4th Nephi. Okay, so this is where we get the first 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11 books of the Book of Mormon, from the small plates and the large plates of Nephi is what they were called. And Mormon, 385 A.D., 385 years after Jesus' birth, he's compiling onto these gold plates. Well, Mormon is about to die, and he dies in a battle. So he gives these plates to his son Moroni. And Moroni then takes over writing in the gold plates. Moroni discovers, uh, and before he does, excuse me, Mormon adds a little testimony of his own. It's called the Book of Mormon. And it's not the whole Book of Mormon. It's just one little book inside the Book of Mormon itself. So more, he adds that. He dies. He hands them off to Moroni. Mormon takes the gold plates. And Mormon finds these old 20 uh, plates that are 2,500 years old uh, uh, around in there. And he translates them into the book of Ether. Okay? And then after that, he adds his own testimony. It's called the book of Moroni. And that ends all the inscription on the gold plates. So this is the story. Now... I guess if you were, if you were a fanciful uh, person and you had imagination, you could come up with all this and, and, and you start to uh, make a good story of it and things. But the problem is this. We have plates that are supposedly written on by the Jaredites 2,500 years before Christ. Then we have 600 years later, brass plates being taken that are holding the record of the Jews and it's written in Egyptian. 
And then we have these plates being written by Lehi, who comes to the Americas from Jerusalem, and they write on plates. And we have this example of this Book of Mormon plate writing from 2500 BC all the way down to Moroni finally uh, translates all of it into the golden plates in 385 AD. And there's no other evidence of plates anywhere in the world. Nowhere. Nowhere. Only in the Book of Mormon do people write on plates. None of the other Jews are writing on plates. None of the Egyptians are writing on plates. Only Joseph's story of where all the information came from was written on plates. It's unbelievable. Okay? So, Moroni takes the plates and he buries them in a hill. And it's called the Hill Cumorah. And on this hill in the Book of Mormon, there was a gigantic battle with swords and all kinds of millions of people dying. Okay? And Moroni buries these gold plates now in this hill. And he says, uh, listen, uh, I'm going to die now. And that's it. So we come to Joseph Smith. And he says that he was instructed by an angel named Moroni. Uh, many hundreds, uh, 1,400 years later, who shows up in his bedroom and he says, I want you to go and get the plates. This was, in September, this was on September 22nd of, of uh, 1823, okay? So this brings us up to modern time of Joseph Smith. Bedroom, September 22nd, don't forget that date. And Moroni shows up and he says, Joseph, paraphrasing, go get the plates from the hill. Joseph goes to get them, and he can't. And Moroni says, come every year on September 22nd to get these gold plates, and then we're going to have a meeting. So every year for four years, Joseph said he goes to the hill to get the plates, but he can never get them. Moroni won't let him have them, or he shocks him, or all these different things are going on. He can never get the plates. Then in uh, uh, 1827, four years after Joseph said the angel first appeared to him, the angel allowed him to take the plates, okay, and to translate them into English. Now, Joseph said that the language written on these gold plates by Moroni and Mormon, his dad, were written in something called Reformed Egyptian. Now, this is a language the Book of Mormon says is unknown to anybody. No one knows the language except for Moroni and Mormon and Joseph, who translates it into English, okay? Additionally, a portion of the golden plates is supposedly sealed off and will not be translated by Joseph Smith uh, and will, is supposed to be translated by somebody else later on. So Smith goes and he gets a neighbor named Martin Harris and to help him uh, translate the plates. And Martin Harris mortgages his farm to help publish the Book of Mormon when it's done. Well, Martin Harris had a wife named Lucy, and she did not like the idea that old Martin was putting up their farm to publish this book from golden plates buried in a hill uh, really close to Joseph Smith's house. So she says, I want to see the manuscript that you've written so far. So far, they had 116 pages. So uh, uh, Martin Harris says, my wife really wants to see these pages, Joseph. And Joseph says, okay, you can have them. And so he gives them to Martin to show his wife. Well, we don't know what happened to him. The wife, I guess, supposedly took them and burned them. So that's the story. She could have kept them secretly. She could have mocked them. We don't know. But all we know is that when Martin Harris came back, uh, 
Joseph, and told Joseph they were gone, Joseph said, quote, all is lost. You see, because he had translated these golden plates by what he calls the gift and power of God. And so he was not going to be able to replicate those first 116 pages. You got it? And so uh, Joseph said, God has taken away my power until I repent for getting those 116 pages away. And so a period of time goes by where they're dead. Joseph doesn't know what to do at this point. And then God says, okay, I'm going to let you, uh, you've repented, so you can go back and start retranslating the plates. And in 1829, Joseph Smith got the assistance of a scribe named Oliver Cowdery to work on the Book of Mormon now, and they completed it in a remarkably short period of time, April to June of 1829. Now, this period of time is what the Mormons say is the time that the, the Book of Mormon was translated. So it was a miraculous thing. He and Oliver sat down and boom, it was done. But what they don't tell you and remind you of is the angel Moroni told Joseph of the plates many years before. There was a period of time that they translated and worked on it. Those pages were lost. There was a period of time when Joseph couldn't work on it because he was supposedly smitten by God for letting the 116 pages go. And finally, when he and Oliver Cowdery sat down to do it, they did it in a couple months. Why? They had nothing else to do. And, and B, uh, Joseph had written the thing already. It was done. The book was ready to go. Okay. Smith said he returned the golden plates to the angel Moroni when the publication of the book was done. And the angel took them back. And then Joseph took the book and it went on sale at E.B. Grandin's bookstore on March 26, 1830. There is a thumbnail sketch of how the Book of Mormon came to be based solely and only on the plates. Okay, in all the archaeological expeditions, studies, and digs that have ever been conducted in the Holy Lands or in America for that matter, no metal plates inscribed with inspired script have ever been unearthed. Even though from this supposed history of the source information of the Book of Mormon, you'd think that stacks and stacks of this method would be lying around Jerusalem, not one. We're going to talk later about some plates called the Kinderhook plates, which Joseph Smith took and translated and said, this is what they say, only to discover later someone made those plates up in their backyard to fool the prophet, Joseph Smith. Let's open up the phone lines, 801-973-8820, 801-973-TV20. While we wait on operators to take your calls, we're going to uh, catch up on a pile of emails uh, we have Roy in Utah. He's a first-time caller, and the representative's graphics is ready. So we're going to show you that right now. These are people who live in your area that if you live in that area and you want to talk to somebody who has come out of Mormonism and into a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, you can call us and we'll make the connection. Here they are. Here they are.
I understand you can't see the pen. All that work. I'm sweating here like a dog. Look at the hair. And you can't see all the work. Well, hopefully you were able to listen. Uh, listen, um, a couple more emails while the operators uh, go through your calls. Someone writes, how is it possible to be born again and saved as a Mormon and or to stay as a Mormon, to be saved as a Catholic or any pagan man-made religion, Kelly uh, writes. The Lord states, come ye out and be separate. And Kelly uses a whole bunch of passages to show that that's impossible. And I just want Kelly to know that there are plenty of passages that uh, counter your idea. It is not the religion a person attends or goes to. There are plenty of people who attend uh, good Bible-believing uh, teaching churches who are not Christian. There are plenty of people in churches that don't typically teach all the right things that are Christian. The church of Christ is made up of people, believers, not made up of the four walls, the cement, the brick and mortar. I don't know how long it's going to take Christians to get that through their head. And yet we, I, most good Christians understand that, but many still write and say, you cannot be a Catholic. You cannot be a, an LDS. You can't be a Jesus only Pentecostal and all these, whatever it is. You know what? The Lord is the one who leads you out. It's through people who are humble and broken and he reaches you and by your faith, you are saved by his grace and he reaches all people everywhere, Kelly. So back off on the dogma, you know, uh, because it just does nothing but offend. And, and, and it's not that I'm uh, ecumenical and say all roads lead to heaven. They don't. Uh, Jesus was emphatic. Only one road leads to heaven. And it's through him. But don't be so dogmatic and critical of people of other faiths who, uh, who stay in that faith but have uh, been born again and love the Lord Jesus. Okay, uh, this Sean, I'm a young, faithful Christian. I have a hard time grasping the book of James in the New Testament. It is, is it not contradictory to what Paul and the Gospels preach? By no means am I trying to debate with you. I just want to make sense of it. I pray about it. I pray God will give me clarification. We did a, a show on this, James, uh, Steve. And um, the best way to understand the book of James is that it's really faith without love. The work that God calls you to do is to love. Love the Lord thy God and love your neighbor as yourself. And to say that you love the Lord, that you have faith and trust in him, but then to not love others, your faith is dead, he says. It, when people say works, faith without works, and that's what they write, read with James, People always say, well, that means I need to go out and do this. I need to do that. I need to take this sacrament. I need to pay this tithe. I need to pay this Sabbath day. That's just not true. Because you have to look at the context. We do teach it. Go back into the old archives, and we actually teach James 2. Just read it in the context of what it says, and it's all about believers are going to love. Okay? Let's open up the phones. Uh, we still The phone lines are full, but if you have trouble getting through, it's okay. Keep trying. We have Sonny in Roy, Utah. He is a first-time caller. Sonny, you're on Heart of the Matter. Sean, how you doing? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. I'm, uh, first of all, I want to tell you I'm a huge fan of yours. Oh, thanks. Yeah. Hey, uh, my question is, my wife was raised LDS, and I am not. Um, but we've been trying to go to separate or different churches around and we're trying to find the difference uh, between the LDS sacrament and like a typical Christian sacrament. 
Oh. If you could explain that. Really good question. Really good. Okay. Um, the Christian, it, they call it communion. And all that that is is a memorial to the shed blood and broken body of Christ. And so they, 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 the Christians actually drink grape juice or wine because that's what Jesus says. This represents my blood, you know. So we're going to take grape juice or wine that looks like the blood, and it's a memorial for what he did for us. It helps us remember. And, and what it is is you get together with a body of like-minded believers, and you, and, you, and you talk about what he did, and you ingest. Everybody's ingesting the same elements, and it brings you together in this Greek word called the koinonia, and you have this fellowship that's spiritual and partly material, and Jesus commanded it. So that is the Christian's communion. Now, there are no ordinances or covenants or anything that they're renewing during that process. With the LDS, they replaced the wine and they made it water. And they will use even wheat bread. Not, the Christians usually use uh, uh, bread that is, does, has, it contains no leaven uh, because leaven was abhorrent to uh, the body. That's a puffed up thing. So you get, use unleavened bread. But to the LDS, the sacrament, what they call it, it's irrelevant whether it's water or wheat bread. And what they're taking it for is to renew the covenant they made at baptism. And they believe that each week as they go to church and take that water and that bread, they do, they do it to remember, and they do it to remember Christ, but they also do it to be cleansed of their sin on a weekly basis. It's the process, they, it's what they believe is spiritual rebirth. It occurs over and over and over again on every week at a time. And so there's a very, there's a marked difference between the way Christians approach communion as Jesus did it in the upper room before he was crucified and as the LDS do it to commemorate their baptism, baptismal covenants where they promise to always remember him, keep his commandments and um, whatever else you do at that table. Does that help, help you at all? That is awesome. Very good. I want to tell you one more thing. Um, when a Latter-day Saint takes that sacrament, they are promising through covenant that they will obey all of God's commandments. Okay? Every week they do this. You ask a Latter-day Saint. Now, when you do that, do you, do you know you're going to break some commandments? Well, yeah. I mean, do you, do you keep all of the commandments throughout the week? No, you know, I lust or I got angry or I did this, I gossiped, I did this. Oh, so, so why do you go every Sunday and you promise to when you know full well, before you take that, that white bread and that water, full well, you are not going to be able to keep all the commandments. And, and it's, it's, you think, well, we're trying, we're trying. No, it's not trying. You know you're going to sin, but yet you covenant with God, you promise where we covenant, we promise we'll keep all your commandments, and they take that in full well knowing they're going to break it. It's really uh, an interesting subject. So I'm glad you brought it up, my friend. Yeah, thank you for explaining it to me. Okay, Sonny, take care. Hey, you too. We'll see you. Bye-bye. We got Bert, LDS, Salt Lake City. Bert, you're on Heart of the Matter. Hello. Hello, Bert. How are you? Good. How are you? I'm sweaty. <laughs> um... Well, I had a question for you. Yeah. So, do you believe that the Savior Jesus Christ, who is described in the Bible, and I'm assuming your religion is the same Jesus Christ being described in the Book of Mormon? Uh, 
You know, it's, a, it's really an interesting question, actually, uh, Bert, because the Book of Mormon Christ, uh, in the way the Book of Mormon describes him, is uh, modalistic. And that's a big word for the Book of Mormon teaches that the Father came down and became the Son. That's called modalism. It was one of the heresies that the creeds fought against. So not three, not Father, Son, Holy Spirit, but that the Father became the Son. So no, I don't think if we're going to be literal about it, that the Book of Mormon teaches the same Christ that, that Christians embrace. Uh, and I was also wondering, um, you believe in the teachings of Christ, correct? Uh, I, tr I certainly believe in his teachings, yes. Um, well, do you believe that the Savior would accept putting down of other religions? instead of teaching them the true religion and not putting down those that are not as true? Well, let me ask you a question. Did the Savior, how did the Savior talk to the Pharisees and Sadducees when they gathered around him? He taught them. He taught them? Did he ever call them names? No. That's a lie. Yes, he did. He called them names. He called them vipers. Did he ever tell them that they were the sons of their father, the devil? Yes, he did. So... What you're saying is what the big clarion call of Mormonism is today is this political correctness and this niceness. We'll just share this in love and, and not with truth. The truth of the matter is, Bert, I'm not being loving to you if I don't show you where the errors of your religion are. And so I have to share it in truth with love. As an individual, I love you. You can stay Mormon, I'm going to love you. You can do something vile to me. I am going to learn to love you. Don't worry, I won't. <laughs> okay, okay, but I'm just telling you. But when it comes to sharing, you know, it says here in Scripture that we are to, to contend earnestly for the faith. You look at Paul when he went. He would go and he would teach and he would strive with them. It says contend. But you see, we live in a world now where that's, that's really not politically correct. I was LDS, Bert, for 40 years. So I know exactly where the people are sitting. I do try to understand what the Bible says, and I do try to understand what I believe for 40 years. And there's such a conflict between the two. I have a duty to try to share that knowledge with people so that they can understand. And I respect that. All right. And, well, before I leave, because I, I got some meetings I got to go to in the morning, but can I leave my testimony with you? What is a testimony? What is a testimony? Yeah. Uh, I thought you would know that. But. Well, I want you to tell me what it is before you share it with me. My testimony is my belief in the Savior Jesus Christ and in the Church of Jesus Christ and Latter-day Saints. Okay, you have a belief in Jesus Christ and in the Church or just Jesus Christ? Both. Okay, and what does that mean? The true Church that is on earth right now. The true Church that's on earth. Okay, when you say you believe... See, this is, this is really good, Bert. I'm sorry you're going to go to your meetings, but i got to ask you. You say you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ... And his church, which is the true church, which is the Mormon church. Yes. How do you reconcile the fact that almost everything in the New Testament conflicts with what the Mormon church says? See, I'm going to admit something to you. Yeah. I don't know everything. But I have faith. And as okay. you can recall, in Alma 32.21, it says, Now as I said concerning faith, faith is not to have a perfect knowledge of things. Therefore... If you have faith, you hope for things which are not seen, which are true. Okay, and he borrowed from Hebrews. But so, I have faith. 
Okay, faith is not something that just comes out of nothing. Faith is based on evidence, Bert. Okay, faith, evidence. God gave us a world of evidence. He gave us Jerusalem. He gave us a place, he gave us places where Jesus walked. He gave us people who were witnesses of his resurrection. You have a faith in what? You have a faith in one man's... Of God. No, you have a faith in one man's teachings, Joseph Smith. Is there any evidence for his teachings? No. So you, what you call faith and a testimony is really your desire just to believe this thing. Have you studied it out? Have you searched to see if there's evidence for it? There's no need for evidence when you know that it is true. Okay, so then how do you differentiate yourself from the guy I talked to just the other day who believes with all his heart that aliens govern this world and that aliens are the God of this world. What differentiates your testimony and your faith from his? Honestly, I don't feel like arguing with you right now as it is that you are getting in a temper. All right, I'm not arguing with you, my friend. I'm emphatic because I see the blinders that are on your eyes. And see, I just gave you an example of why your faith and testimony is fallible. Anybody can believe anything. But God didn't, just like our first show last week on the Book of Mormon, he doesn't expect you to just blindly just, just believe anything. He gives you his word. He says, search it. Seek it out. Find out where the truths are. But you don't do that. You say, my leaders tell me this. I obey. It is what is true. And that is not faith, Bert. It's not. I'm not mocking you. I pray, I, and I know that he is the prophet of this truth. Okay, what makes your prayers different from Islam? No. That says the Quran is the absolute word of God, the most correct book on the, on the face of this earth, and that they have um, prophets, that Muhammad was a prophet. What makes your prayers different from theirs? Um, well, I know they pray differently. No, but what makes them different in terms of how you know your epistemology, how you know what truth is? Why are your prayers superior to someone who is Islamic? Sorry, I've got... Some. You got to go to the meeting? Here. What? You got to go to the meeting? Got some people that are being kind of loud. <laughs> oh. Um, no, but I'm sorry, but... I'm sorry. Let me... I'm sorry that you won't let me bear my testimony. And as the Savior said, do not pass your pearls before swine. And so I guess they should leave you now. Thank you for not casting them, my friend. I've heard them enough. I think it's a reverse. You're casting a swine before pearls. See you later. All right. Let's go to Bill in Mission Viejo, California. Bill, you, Bill you're on Heart of the Matter. Uh, wrong line. Oh, uh, it says one. I'm sorry. He's on two, I believe. Who is this lovely person? Sorry, this is Janet. Oh, Janet. Thank you for being sorry. a good operator. <laughs> Okay, hold on. <laughs> All right, Bill, you're on Heart of the Matter. John, how are you? I'm doing well. How are you doing? Good, brother. Hey, I, uh, I sent you an email a while back. I, was, uh, I, was, I grew up a Catholic in Brigham. You responded to my email. I invited you to uh, my church, Saddleback Church. I live in Mission Viejo. Oh, yeah. Set that up. I'll come. Yeah, right on, brother. Hey, listen, real quick, Sean. Here's what I wanted to tell you. I've been corresponding with this guy um, on YouTube. I don't know where it all started. It all started on one of your videos. He's called the Mormon Answer Man. And I, I made a statement to him that, that DNA has proven that all American Indians came from Mongolia. Well, today I looked on my YouTube account, and let me, uh, let me read to you what he wrote me back, okay? It said, 
No, you are deceived by Sean. The Nephites had their DNA changed by God. <laughs> kind of like Jesus did miracles. Oh, I don't know, like walk on water, raising the dead, etc. God is not limited. The Book of Mormon does say that God caused the change to come upon the Nephites that rebelled. So there you go. Your DNA argument is completely irrelevant at this point. <laughs> I was just so taken back by that. I didn't know what, I didn't even respond. Like I'm that. taken back by it. I'm sweating more because of it. It's amazing. You know, Bill, it doesn't matter. We've always said this. Facts are irrelevant to someone who wants to believe. It should be reversed. We should have facts. We should have faith. We should have feelings in that order, right. not feelings. Right. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, I'm sorry. That, board, that uh, Mormon answer man, he, he absolutely has no answers, none. He has spin. Right. Spin. Keep, I, I would give up with him. I would just go to someone who's seeking, my friend. I, that's what I told him. I said, you know what? I said, uh, I said, no wonder you're the answer man. I said, uh, you know, how convenient is that? You know, yeah. I, I just... Exactly. Don't, don't need to respond back to me, I said, because those are absurd answers, and I, don't, I, I didn't know you were that so far off that you're going to come back with that. So anyway, I just thought... Thanks for watching, Bill. Take care. Oh, man. What's that? Thanks for watching, my brother. Take care. All right. Thank you okay. so much, Sean. Bye-bye. Uh, can you focus in on this, Natalie? In this Book of Mormon, you see this picture right here? You know what they found? They found some necklace pieces of gold that were put together by wire here uh, in Peru. And they put this in the Book of Mormon <laughs> to show little tiny plates that a woman wore around her neck. And it says, gold plates fastened together with gold rings as evidence of the plate theory that I illustrated on the board that none of you can see. So uh, amazing stuff. Question off air, who do the LDS people think that Jesus was praying to? Uh, this, this is a good question. The LDS think that Jesus was praying to the Father, and they use the fact that he prayed to the Father as evidence that the Father and the Son are separate and distinct individuals. Here's the thing. Please listen. Christians believe they are three distinct individuals. Jesus, we believe that Jesus was uh, uh, God. He prayed to his Father who is God, uh, and uh, he sent the Holy Spirit who is God, and there is one God. To understand that, I'm not going to even try to attempt it. The LDS say that Jesus, God, in, uh, learning to be God, prayed to his Father who was once a man and became God, and uh, when Jesus died, then he inherited and learned to become a God himself and would get his own things. And that's what you and I can do too. So the, it, to make it easy, the easiest way to understand that just the basic difference between the LDS idea of God and the Christian is the LDS say the Father has a body of flesh and bone, just like me. The Father has one, the Holy, uh, Jesus has one, and the Holy Spirit will get one. That makes him three separate gods. Christians say the Father is spirit. The fullness of the Godhead dwelled in Jesus bodily. He came down and took on flesh, Jesus' spirit, and the Holy Spirit, spirit. The major difference between them, understanding them, is the LDS say that the Father has a body. That's the difference, okay? <clears throat>
Next question says, who are the 11 witnesses? We're going to talk about that. There are 11 witnesses to the Book of Mormon, and we'll talk about that later. From Wes, he says, I'm really curious why you call your book, I was a born-again Mormon, rather than I am a born-again Mormon. Just curious, uh, I was born again and LDS, West, and I am no longer LDS. That's why we call the book that. Uh, someone in Magna says that in Magna, the Kennecott workers from 1800s to 1820, that the workers were paid according to the color of their skin. The white and delightful had the highest pay out there. We're going to check to see if that is true or not. And then we have from Vanessa who writes, tell me something, do you feel the spirit when you do what you do? People that find it hard to live according to the gospel of Jesus Christ that he instituted on the earth are the ones that are or would be happy to hear anything that is false so that, there is, is that, so that they have an excuse to get out of the church. I do know many people that decided not to live the gospel, fell in sins, and were miserable after all. Living the gospel does not make me a slave, but free and happy. Let me finalize with this comment uh, to Vanessa. Uh, and we've talked about it many times on the show before we ran out of time. You can be happy when you embrace a system or a philosophy. You can receive happiness when you really fully embrace the military. Or if you were part of the Third Reich and you wore the uniform and followed all the orders. You find happiness when you belong to your corporation and you do everything that they do. You go to their picnics and you, you're, you can find happiness because happiness is circumstantial. When you belong to the Mormon church, especially in the state of Utah or in the United States, you have a built-in family. You have a cultural hall. You have happiness. And you can go and you find this, this feeling of warmth and friendliness and all this stuff. That's fine. That is, that is happiness. And, and so you get it on this earth. Other people say, I'm tired of that Mormon happiness. I'm going to go to the bar. And they find their happiness in a gin and tonic. They find their happiness with a man or a woman. They find their happiness in fighting. They find their happiness in all sorts of areas. And God allows that. But there is a marked difference between happiness that a system will give you and the joy and the certainty that comes with knowing Jesus Christ. And when you know Jesus Christ within you, guess what he promises? Persecution, trials, difficulty, because you're no longer part of this world. So when you guys write me and say, hey, uh, do you feel good when you do that? Not always. Sometimes I feel sick having to do this. But you know what? I know I'm supposed to do it. And it's not all about my happiness. It's about doing what the Lord wants me to do. You too can know the Lord. You can have a personal relationship with him. Go to him and tell him you need him. You're a sinner. You have committed sins and you're going to continue to probably. You need his forgiveness. You need his love. And you can find the joy I'm talking about. See you next week here on Heart of the Matter. I'm gonna break my rusty cage and run I'm gonna break I'm gonna break my Gonna break my rusty cage and run I'm gonna break I'm gonna break my Gonna break my rusty cage and run I'm gonna break 
I'm gonna break my, I'm gonna break my rusty cage.